Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. You can probably guess what I'm about to say right now. If you would like to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and subscribe. That is what helps keep us going, helps us keep making the podcast and everything else we do at Cosmic Shambles. And you also get lots of extra goodies, extra series, extended episodes, an extended episode of this week and pretty much every week of Book Shambles. So that is a great way to support the show. You can also rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends, family, post about it on social media, all that fun stuff. Josie is away this week, so it is Robin flying solo, and he is talking to the author and palliative care doctor, Catherine Mannix, about her new book, Listen, just to let you know that there is uh, some content in this episode talking about... uh, death and suicide and that sort of thing that some listeners might find upsetting so just be aware of that and with that said here is today's episode here is robin and Catherine. hello welcome to josie and robin's book shambles there is no josie today but she will be back very very soon and uh just a couple of things to mention before we get started the show one is if you are able to support us via patreon.com patreon.com slash book shambles that is very very useful to us and helps us make all of these shows and i'm afraid that you will always hear this preamble now uh because uh my book is imminently out my new book the importance of being interested so i will be using my podcast in this narcissistic way to say uh go and have a look at it you might like it uh Carla Rovelli said a nice thing about it there we are um and I actually I was going to start off with something that it, when I was researching the book which it plays its part in the discussion we're going to have today I'm joined by Catherine Mannix who uh many of you will know from her her previous book uh, with the end in mind dying death and wisdom in the age of denial and her new book is listen how to find the words for tender conversations and uh I recommend both of them highly but the thing that about listen was in 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 the chapter of my new book about um the possibility of extraterrestrial life uh in which frank drake as well as spending his life hoping to hear signals of possible intelligent life from beyond the earth also spent a lot of his time working on a phone line which was the american equivalent of the samaritans a kind of helpline for people in distress um, that's what I thought I'd start with that story, Catherine, because I, I love it. I, I just think that it's one of my favourite things of finding out that this fantastic scientist with all of this imagination never detached himself from the other sides of human emotion and human reality. And that's what I find with with your work as well. That you know you and and you talk about this development as well as you know with with experience. But that opening up of you very often you know have important works in the world of medicine and then working out how do we then create the conversations for so much around that world so much of that trauma and loss Mm. and actually we make the mistake of thinking that we can tell people that we give people information um we give them data and they will then go oh yeah right okay that's obviously the thing to do and i don't think data ever captured a heart It's stories that capture hearts and the way we present the information needs to become relevant by 
being told in a way that people can hear how this is relevant for me and for people who are important for me and, and my life. So I, I'm not sure that I am a scientist particularly, but I think I am a storyteller. I suppose what I was really is that idea of that sense of, of as you said, of facts versus also the emotional life. And it's something that I think Listen does. I mean, it, the, your, your, your first book with, with the end in mind, I, I thought, was it does seem to be such a problem. And it seems very much, uh, from a lot of people that I've spoken with, they see it, in particularly in England, even within the British Isles, that the, the conversation about the uh, death, the conversation about finding the language or being able to listen, because it is such an absurd thing, the idea that someone is there and then they are not. And the idea that the cognitive distance that we require to go through life is to kind of try and ignore death, try and ignore the idea that there, there's an end. So can you first of all, just get, when did you realise this is this is a subject that needs to be written about? These, these are words that need to you, you that you wanted to give people some sense of, 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 of a guide of the possibilities I think it was quite early on in my medical career that I heard somebody describing dying to a dying person and I'd been working for about four years then and because I'd seen myself on a cancer medicine trajectory I'd chosen cancer medicine wards to work on during my early training so that's the early to mid 1980s cancer treatments weren't so good as they are now and so I'd seen a lot of people die and when this new boss said to me, come with me, I'm going to talk to this lady who's worried about dying in excruciating agony. Come, come and listen. I actually thought he was going to go and do a pain consultation with her. I thought he was going to go and talk about the, the agony. But what he talked about was her understanding of dying and would help her to know what to expect and then began to describe this process. And young me, cynical me, is thinking, how can you possibly describe a process? You know, I've seen several hundred people die and they've all died of different things. And then he started to describe this thing of a kind of final common pathway, if you like, in the same way that giving birth has a final common pathway. Hi, Josie. And um, that kind of process that human bodies go through that is individual for the person, but it's recognizable from time to time, from occasion to occasion, in everybody. And as he's describing this process, I'm thinking, how have I never seen this? He's absolutely right, but I've been too busy worrying about this person's blood pressure and that person's oxygen levels and this person's kidney function. I haven't stood back and seen the pattern. And once he explained it to her, I saw it, and then I could not unsee it. So that was a real kind of cataclysmic medical revelation moment to me. And I then discovered that I could do this thing of describing what's going to happen to dying people. And just like this first person whom I'd seen it described to, who relaxed as he was explaining, because it wasn't the awfulness she was expecting. And maybe we'll talk about what actually happens in a minute. But watching her relax until her eyes were closed, her shoulders were relaxed, and she actually kissed his hands at the end of that conversation that relief, that understanding that people understand, that it's not random, that there's a series of things that we can prepare ourselves for, that my family can understand as they're around me, my companions can understand what's going on and not be terrified by it. 
is enormously important. So this is a very long and rambly answer, but I think the thing is that early on I realised understanding the process of dying brings people comfort and it helps them to start to prepare and to have the conversations that they've been postponing because they thought it would be too terrible to talk about. And 30 years later, what I realised was the public still had no better understanding, the conversations hadn't started and, and really writing with the end in mind was it was an act of despair really who who is going to talk about dying who is going to describe ordinary dying who is going to help people to know more and so be less afraid we can't keep doing it one person at a time one family at a time we need to do something on a much much bigger platform and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do but I took early retirement to make the space to do something and then a series of fortunate events <laughs> led to the writing of, of that book. And of course, there are lots of other voices in that area. I'm not the only person who's doing this, but that coalition seems to be growing um, and the voices are getting stronger and the message is starting to be heard. And that's fantastic. It's interesting seeing that change. And as you said, there is a, there's a lot of interesting literature coming out now. And it kind of in, in a pop culture way, it reminds me of uh, I'm not a big U2 fan or fan of Bono or anything like that. But the one thing he said that I really like was when Johnny Cash did a cover version. I don't know if you've ever seen it of a, a song called Hurt. Um, and it's this incredibly beautiful video where June Carter Cash is in it as well. And you now see this very fragile man, this man who has been so powerful and all of you know those famous pictures of him giving the finger to the camera. And Bono said he he's done for age what Elvis did for youth and I thought yeah. that was an interesting and and I know this is not merely about being older death is many other things but still that bit of starting to put those things into popular culture you know the way that we look at those who are because in, in terms of illness it's when you were talking about cancer I was thinking about uh, a friend of mine who had cancer and uh fortunately now um all, all clear and during that that year or so of, of treatment some of her friends disappeared yeah and she said i understand why they've gone and she was in, in fact surprisingly I, I i i think in terms of the empathy she had for her friends who just decided it was best but that seems to be part of it as well that the, the fear of being near end of sickness and the fear of not having the correct language means that the conversation and not even, even the conversation even just the social thing of just popping in and saying i've brought a cake or whatever it is mm. some people will go I, I i don't want to be involved at all yeah, that's absolutely right. And actually, I think we've probably all felt the feelings that can lead to that behaviour. We've all seen our, you know, bereaved neighbour or colleague at a close enough distance that we could take those few extra steps and go and say, hi, how are you? And felt that qualm inside us of, I don't know what to say. What if he doesn't want to say hello? What if he's just on the brink of tears and when I speak I'll set him off um, and you can feel your feet trying to turn you around trying to take you the other way and bereaved people really describe this you know seeing people crossing the road away from them and there's a huge abandonment there so when I started thinking about this next book, it was really born from the correspondence from the first book, which was people saying, yeah, okay, so you've convinced us this is something we need to talk about, but I don't know how to find the words. Uh, I wanna get my elderly parents to tell me what they're 
preferences are, but they won't let me start the conversation or I don't know how to start the conversation. And then lots and lots of older people or people who knew themselves to be in the last part of their lives, even younger people with serious illnesses saying, I cannot get my people to listen to me. Every time I try to have this conversation, they close me down. Uh, can't we talk about something more cheerful? And so they're abandoned in this place where they're thinking about all this stuff anyway. And my publishers were very keen for a second book, but they didn't want it to just be a death book, which is you know interesting given that that is in fact my specialist subject for mastermind, isn't it? Um, but there are conversations that people want to have about all sorts of things about adolescence and bodily changes and coming out and infertility and fetal loss and the kids being a little bit different from the way you thought things would turn out and am I parenting okay and am I still attractive to the people I want to be attractive to all of those aching conversations that need somebody to just listen to you they can't put it right they can't change what is but they could listen that reminds me of uh, a while ago, about four years ago, did a benefit uh, for uh, an American uh, friend of mine who was having cancer treatment. Of course, as we know, this can be ridiculously expensive just to try and, and, and live. And I said, do you want to record anything for this this benefit that we're doing in Wimbledon or, or, or write anything? And she said, oh, well, you can just read this out. And she wrote this lovely piece. I think we put it somewhere online. It was by Helen Crimmins and... Uh, and uh, and she, the final thing she said was, sometimes when you ask me how I am, then you don't have to say anything more. I think that's, that's profound, isn't it? And the other thing that I often bear in mind is um, Cheryl Soderbergh talking about bereavement and saying, how are you? is too big. I cannot begin to tell you how I am. Help me by closing it down. How are you doing right now? How's your morning been? Was this week okay? Because actually how I am is so cosmically altered by whatever the change is, bereavement, change in life expectancy, discovering that your dreams are never going to be fulfilled, whatever the thing is that you're carrying. How am I is too big. What an absolutely profound thing to say. Do you think, I, I wonder why it is we can't have those, is it, do you think somewhere in it is with the people that we love and the people that might be our partners, because we feel a sense of responsibility for them as well? Oh, I'm sure. We feel that we can't burden, is that part of, of you think, what it is? I'm just interested psychologically yeah. why, why, why we can't. I, I think it's hugely complex. Some of it is shame and some of it is guilt. But some of it is protection and love and kindness. And some of it is this sense that, you know, I, I might be 97, but I am the mother here and I cannot burden my children in their 70s <laughs> with this. And I've seen that at work, you know, or um, I've, I've seen the children in their, their 70s unable to discuss with their parents the fact that the parent is knocking on heaven's door. They've got, you know, 27 different things wrong with them. They've been in and out of hospital for the last year. Clearly it's starting to happen, but somehow we can't take the lid off it. We can't talk about it because we can't bear the idea of this person not being in our lives anymore. So I think there are many, many different reasons 
and they're probably a blend of all those different reasons in different ratios amongst different people but it's almost always born out of kindness and and love and you know we're not very good at using our d words are we we're not very good at saying dying and death and death but we're bloody useless at using our l words you know the idea that you could be looking after somebody because of love not commitment or guilt or any of those other things but just you know i love this person i'm going to turn up and do this and one of the ways that we turn up and do things is to not tell them how bad it is i'll hold it inside because i love them too much to let them see my sorrow and feel not just my sorrow but their sorrow about my sorrow it's such a, it reminds me of when when my one of the times my mother was dying in hospital she didn't die that time but we were told she was about to die and i just remember that you know my dad and me had to go into this little room where it was there were loads of old copies of chat magazine and tv listings magazines from sometime in the late 80s i think and i don't remember there was no conversation was impossible it was a, you know there was there was nothing that it was, so it was just that it's oh, an old magazine, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that, that's, mm. uh, and it's, and maybe sometimes it is, maybe that's, I, I don't know again what you would think of that, whether sometimes what that bit where you can acknowledge a silence, but we, we seem to be in that interim period where you can't say anything, but you're kind of making noises. And actually, yeah. there might be a way of finding uh, a, a, a silence that is, uh, that, no, that we can just do this in silence as opposed to the frustration of, yeah. Um, do, do you think we need brokers for that? Do you think that the, the thing is for each family that's doing this, it's usually the first time. Some families have a few runs at it. Sounds like your family did. But for most of us, the only time that you're sitting with a dying parent is the only time they die. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so you just you, there's no dress rehearsal. So maybe we do need some brokers. Maybe we do need some kind, wise, being around the block, a few people to show you into that room which I actually dubbed the Room of Doom, and introduce you to it. Okay, we're going to give you this room. You can use this as much as you want to. You can get yourself beverages here. The toilets are there. Do you know what? You might have lots to say to each other, or you might just want to sit and be quiet, and there are no rules. You just do it your way. It's absolutely fine. And somehow just giving a little introduction into, I don't know, the etiquette. The etiquette of being around somebody at the very end of life is really, really important to to just help them to know that whatever you're doing is okay. There isn't a wrong way of doing this. We do the same thing around deathbeds to to come into the room. You know, if you and your dad sitting with your mum and saying, "How how is she doing? How do you think she is? Has she looked as comfortable as this?" for a while or just now and 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 actually by drawing people's attention to the fact that somebody does look comfortable does look relaxed that their face isn't straining that their breathing isn't horrible um you draw their attention to some of the things that they otherwise don't notice that are of comfort because when we're sorrowful we know this from cognitive theory when we're sorrowful what we notice are the sorrows and the difficulties when we're anxious what we notice are the threats um so to actually reintroduce the balance in the room of what are the comforts here so you can take those away in your memory as well as the difficulties and if somebody's 
breathing is making peculiar noises because unconscious people and people approaching death are, are usually deeply unconscious. Unconscious people make very weird breathing noises. And if you've never heard them before, they sound like effort. They sound like struggle. They sound like lots of fluid in places where it shouldn't be, where in fact it's probably a tiny bit of fluid with a lot of air moving in and out of it and bubbling. So to be able to talk about that says, you know what, your, your person that you love is not clearing their throat. And if you or I had even the tiniest crumb or drop of tea on the back of our throat, what would we be doing? And everybody in the room is thinking, yeah, we would be coughing, we'd be spluttering, we'd be gagging, we'd be trying to clear our throat. Okay, well, let's, let's look at your mum again. Let's look at your wife again. Let's look at your son again. Is that happening? Okay, no, it's not, is it? So that tells us this person is so deeply unconscious that that really, really well-innovated bit of the body at the back of the throat, loads and loads of sensory nerves to protect us from swallowing something down the wrong way and choking, they are completely switched off from feeling that now. They are deeply, deeply unconscious. They are profoundly beyond feeling discomfort. So that weird breathing noise, that tells me that this person is not feeling uncomfortable, but it is a weird noise and it's okay for you to think it's weird. We hear it a lot, but you won't hear it till the next time you're sitting with somebody who's dying. So, you know, one of the things we know is that hearing seems to be preserved until quite late. So chat, talk to each other, let them hear the voices in the room. We don't know whether they understand words and language, but they'll recognize your voices. What music should we be playing? Who should we be talking about? How can we make this space around this bed the space that belongs to you and your family? And what we're doing really is we're listening. We're listening to you. We're listening to what you're able to tell us as we ask questions from our experience that help you to know that whatever you choose to do, however you choose to be in this space today, that's okay. I always remember the, again a very stupid kind of it feels like a very English thing. The on the actual what was the the the, the last night where where she died at home. The fear of embarrassment. I was sat up with my niece, and uh, one of my nieces, and uh, the uh, and like when, when the breathing did get very very laboured, and that bit going. Oh, do you think we can ring the hospice nurse? Well, they might be really cross if we get you know all of those things. We go. Oh my god! Even at a time like this, you still go. Oh well, I I, I hope we don't annoy people. I hope we you know and and of course. The, you know the hospice nurse would come and they would be totally understanding but that that's still that that embarrassed fear that fear of 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 shame in those situations at the these situations the magnitude of that do you think as a britishness are we terminally polite is that our problem is that our curse terminally angry and terminally polite i always think that jg ballard thing you said you know the reason one of our problems is you you do that thing like like the example of you you bump into someone in the street and you, and you go oh i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and then by the time you turn the corner you go stupid bloody idiot and and that it, it reminds me of you've got a lovely quote from philippa perry uh on on your book and, and, and one of the most useful things uh philippa ever said to me i think was uh that the problem we have as human beings is that we we judge everyone else from the outside and we judge ourselves from the inside and that seems to play Play so much of a part again in this embarrassment, this this stupid impotent rage, and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. She, God, she's a wise woman, isn't she? Um, and and one of the things that I love about her writing is how she is able to help us to be generous to ourselves, to see what we are worth, 
And I think that's one of the things that I'm trying to encourage readers of listen to think about is that there's no magic formula to being a good listener. We we know how to do conversations. We knew, we know neurobiologically that babies understand about gaze and returning gaze, mirroring face movements, um, imitating sounds, taking turns. We're programmed for conversation. And somehow we turn all that programming off once we learn manners <laughs> and we stop being us and we start to be the version of us that we think that we should be to the world. And what I'm trying to encourage people to think about is you already know how to do all of this it isn't that there's a script to follow and if you say these words it will all work it's that you know how to pay attention you know how to really listen to somebody else and in doing that what you're doing is giving them the space but the difficulty we've got is we've been trained into fixing and I think that is training. We, did, we hear somebody say three sentences about the thing that's tricky and immediately we're offering them solutions. Well, actually, if it was that easy, they'd have fixed it by now. The fact that it is a problem means that all of the solutions you could just think of like that are not the right solution. If you think you can solve it for them, you haven't really understood it yet. So shut up, <laughs> keep listening. And it's, it's quite a hard thing to do because we're overriding that impulse to be helpful, reassuring, finding the fix for you. And all of those things just kind of squish the space in which difficult stuff can be expressed. And it's okay to say it. It's okay to feel it. It's safe here. I love that there was, it feels that though I was talking to a, a, a Jewish friend of mine who said that one of the things that he loved about being brought up Jewish was it meant that he's been brought up in a tradition that says you're allowed to answer a question with a question. And that seems to play, you know, that part of, of that as well, which is uh, in, in terms of listening sometimes. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things that I've brought into this is that I, I did a, a sideways step and trained as a cognitive behaviour therapist during my palliative medicine training because I realised that there's a skill set needed for being able to better help people who are emotionally distressed. Um, and what I loved about learning cognitive theory is that it's not a theory of sick people, it's a theory of human beings. This is how we're wired. This is how we think. Um, and that the thoughts that pass through our minds, sometimes with no attention at all, have really profound impact on our emotions or on our behavioral responses and so we find ourselves doing things and feeling things without having really noticed the thoughts that drove them and what we can do in cognitive therapy we can do in ordinary conversations which is be curious when you tell me that you're feeling very sad can you help me to understand a little bit more about what it is that's causing the sadness when when you feel that feeling do you notice that you're thinking about something in particular and when you do think about that thing do you notice anything else at the same time and all we're doing really is we we it's like taking the layers off an onion we're just 
unpeeling and unpeeling. And each question we ask helps the person to reflect on the situation a bit more, think about it in the round instead of just going down the usual furrow that they go along. They start to step sideways and look at it with you. And I, I had a patient in my cognitive therapy clinic once who said to me, I love these conversations because we're talking about the stuff that makes me feel so bad, but I'm not feeling it now. I'm looking at it with you. So it's a really helpful thing to start to ask people questions where you and they together are looking at their dilemma instead of them feeling as though they're standing in the dilemma, paralyzed by it. One of the things that I, you, you tell the story of a young woman who had, uh, I think, a thyroid uh, problem and she was meant to be getting married and, and she had a, a slight goiter as well and she'd lost a lot of weight. And I love the way that you, you talk about the fact that her physical reality was that she had lost a bit of weight, but that it was a very mild goiter and you could actually just say, don't be so silly, you look mm. absolutely fine. But the way that you talk about the fact that you, you the physical reality is not as important as the emotional reality. And, and as you said at the beginning, you can't, it doesn't matter what facts you say yeah. about the goiter or her. And, and I think that that seems to me a very important, it's, it's like the, when people talk about the problem of pain, I think it's it, it, it's Lauren Mosley, if that's how I think it is, who said, you know, the first, first thing you have to deal with, with when someone says they're in pain is that the pain is real. Yeah. It doesn't matter if the nail isn't really going through their foot. They are experiencing that. And I thought that way of trying to empathise beyond the outside. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, that, that, that young woman was so profoundly different to herself that she could find no place of comfort. And I'm worrying about um, whether or not a wedding dress could be taken in a bit. And actually, if she stands in a particular way, that goiter won't show in the wedding photographs. I can see all the solutions. Um, my prof who's come in to review the patient with me is just sitting there asking questions and you know all of this awful sorrow is coming tumbling out and actually it's not it's not about whether the wedding dress fits her at all it's whether her body even fits who she thinks she is anymore whether her life feels like the life she thought she was previously living so we can't from the outside appreciate somebody else's point of view all we can do is ask them to explain it to us and make no assumptions at all that they'll see it the way we see it because almost certainly they won't it's fascinating and it's humbling really because you've got to sit on your hands and not try and fix and all therapists describe that you know when we go to supervision one of the things we talk about is how we want to make things better for the people that we're working with and we know that the way to help them to be in a better place is to help them to be the people who solve the problems that they're dealing with so that they carry the solution inside them so that it hasn't been done for them it's been done by them but it's really hard to resist pointing out how they could make it easier for themselves and that never helps how do you because i mean that makes immediately makes me think of things like the fast thinking and slow thinking brain you know daniel kahneman the fact that you know mm -hmm. the fast thinking brain does immediately want to go don't be so silly you barely lost weight or put on weight or you look fine your hair's great or whatever it's the slow thinking brain that that 
it has to do that you know that there's there's the bit the bit that really does burn up the calories the bit that and and do you find i mean how are you able to 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 practice that how are you able to sometimes go shut up fast thinking brain slow thinking brain get in there um what what are the do you are there particular kind of exercises that that might help people in terms of those moments of not going for the the the, the first option well, when, when we're training healthcare professionals to do this, we do a little exercise with them that actually anybody could do. And it's, and it's quite revealing and funny because of that, which is we get people in pairs and we talk about how we're going to only ask questions um, and summarise what we've heard so far. We're not going to give any advice, but we're going to notice the impulse to give advice, but we're not going to give it. And we ask people to bring with them a lightweight dilemma that isn't solved. And it's important that it isn't solved because they don't bring the right head to it. If it's something that, oh, you know, I could talk about that time when I didn't know what to make for dinner when the mother-in-law came, but we sorted it in the end. It's got to be a real life problem. And then we ask them to just talk for five minutes and then change ends, blow a whistle and bridge changes ends, um, of just exploring the dilemma. And it's things like we're trying to think of a retirement present for our headmaster who's been at the school for a long time. And we, you know, the mums in year six want to give a thank you present or um, we're trying to fix on a family holiday and everybody wants something different, trying to work out what to do. And the other person simply asks you to talk about it. And then they summarise what you've said so far and then they ask you a little bit more about it. And then we debrief people at the end and actually what we find is that first of all okay who gave advice now they've been strictly told not to give advice who gave advice at least a third of the room will put their hands up and that's just the honest ones okay so we all want to do it even when we've been asked not to who felt that they wanted to give advice who could see how this problem could be solved three quarters of the room put their hands up okay who felt this was really artificial that just asking a question and then asking another question and asking another question, it must be really obvious. That's what I'm doing. Everybody puts their hand up. It felt really artificial. Okay, when you were being listened to, who felt it was artificial? Nobody. Okay, Um, who found in their pair that they'd solved their problem or found a new way of looking at their problem? Everybody. So actually, one of the ways of helping people to move to a different way of exploring is by giving them a success experience of doing the exploring. So it'd be really fun if people who were listening to us could, you know, sometime in the next week before they've completely forgotten, um, just chat with somebody else by prior agreement. So you can try this thing that this crazy woman said on Book Shambles. Um, where we just listen to each other for five minutes and ask each other questions about a problem that we're trying to solve. And at the end of it, we're going to have you know, tea and cake. So we'd, even if we end up in a place where it turns out to have been deeper and more emotional than we were expecting, we've got a safe place to go to at the end. But I do advise people to choose something really, really light. Don't talk about problem relationships. Do not talk about family arrangements for Christmas. That way lies, you know, tears and snot without the shadow of a doubt do something really really lightweight and you'll be surprised at how 
profound the experience is and how funny it is as you find yourself wanting to you, know, you can feel the advice rising bubbling up inside you you're desperate to say it and you could just squash it back down and ask another question it's so insight building can we talk just briefly about the the first story in in the book when in which you talk about having to uh tell uh someone that their husband has has just died of a, a heart attack and and how that went and i just i'm, I'm interested well well first of all yeah could you just tell us a little bit about that story so i was a i was a very junior doctor i've been qualified for a year and a little bit um and I had been in the resuscitation room with a man had been brought in. The paramedics had been doing CPR in the ambulance. Um, this is the early 1980s. Um, and eventually we had not been able to restart his heart and it had been decided to stop. And the time of death was recorded as the time we stopped pressing on his heart and then something unusual happened which was the doctor in charge instead of asking me as the junior doctor to write up the notes asked me to go and tell his wife who'd arrived in the hospital during the resuscitation attempt and had been shown into this tatty little room that we had in the emergency department um, and I was appalled really to be given that job but also I was a doctor obviously and I had a properly starched white coat because the hospitals used to provide them in those days and I'd done a training course and I knew that I had to check I was talking to the right person um, and I had to give her a warning shot that I had really bad news and then I had to not boot about the bush I had to tell her the news and then be prepared to be with her while she processed it so I knew the theory practiced it with other students when we were at medical school but this was the first time I'd had to tell somebody that someone had died when it wasn't somebody I'd already met usually on the ward I'd been looking after the patient for a, a little while and I'd already met the family so I went into this room and I, I checked who she was and I told her I had terrible news for her and then I, I said oh, I'm really really sorry to tell you that your, your husband has just died and and she stood up and screamed and called me a liar and I didn't see what happened but what happened was very very painful to my nose made me stagger backwards made me see orange lights and she just sat down and collapsed and started weeping and I realized that she must have actually punched me on the nose and I was just horrified I didn't know what to do what to say it was awful and I was rescued. I was rescued by this wonderful staff nurse who, you know, the flimsy walls betrayed all secrets. So she obviously heard she arrived with a big security, well, well a big porter who was uh, security as well. And, and I just thought, oh God, we do, we do not need to turn this into a security incident. Uh, so the nurse came in without the porter and sat down next to this woman and then just gave an absolute masterclass in communication and as I was watching her I was just watching all of the things I could have done and failed to do that she sat down why, why the hell did I not sit down next to this woman that she took hold of her hand and she stroked her shoulder and she started talking to her about what a shock it was how difficult it was and then she started to ask her questions and what interesting questions she said to her 
had you been worried about his health? And then she started, the wife started to talk about how the husband had had one heart attack before, that she thought he'd been on borrowed time, that today he'd looked a bit grey and she'd asked him not to go to work. And this nurse carried on asking questions and and summarising, saying, so already today you had a feeling something wasn't right. And did you feel really surprised when you got the call from work? Well, actually she was shocked but at the same time she wasn't that surprised she'd been like oh says the nurse you've been expecting something difficult something terrible to happen and what she'd done in a very short space of time was speak with a gentle voice use very simple words no medical words and she had rewound the story she'd taken this woman back to being a worried wife with a husband who previously had a heart attack with a nagging worry that the next heart attack could happen any time and almost kind of built her some stepping stones from how things were when he went out to work this morning to sitting here in this horrible room being told this terrible news and realizing that actually she kind of been expecting it and then she took her around the corner to sit with her husband and got me to go and do a job that I was capable of doing which was making a cup of tea and that was so kind of her because it didn't de-roll me it gave me something to do when I just felt that I made a horrible situation 10 times worse and it was amazing to reflect on how doing it by the book which is what I'd been doing was was awful It was just, it was artificial. It was a script. It was, you know, say this, then say this, then say this. And what this nurse had done was meet the woman and respond to her. And there isn't a script. There are questions. And the answers to those questions then tell you what the next questions can be. So you can't be thinking of the next question while the person's speaking because you haven't heard what they're going to say yet and it was the best education it was a standout moment of awfulness in my medical career I actually feel a little bit sick even just talking about it now but what it taught me was that there is a way of being beside people at times when things are awful and it's not about what you say it's about how you are and how you listen brilliant thank you so much for joining us it's been a real privilege to to talk to you listen is out uh now um i always ask this as well at the end of a conversation in terms of uh what are you when when you're writing a book like this what are you able to read yourself do you do you have the entire like i know people who you know will if they're working on something very intense straight ago all i read is agatha christie it's the only thing it has to be the the poles apart well i i where do you where do you retreat to when you're when you're in the midst of writing something like this oh that's such a great question so while i was writing this um I I have a friend who's a poet who was working on a poetry collection and one of the things that was absolutely lovely was to look at her poems and you know how how lovely to be allowed to give somebody feedback about their creativity Um, so that's one of the things that I was doing and often I find I'm, I'm worried about reading other writers while I'm writing in case somehow changes the way I'm dealing with 
writing the writing. Um, so uh, during the actual writing period, I don't think I did very much other reading at all other, other than uh, newspapers, magazines, things like that. When I'm not writing though, and certainly when I was at work, I couldn't read anything distressing as entertainment, couldn't watch miserable films. Um, so the kind of the books that I've written are not books I could have read when I was working because I needed everything to be the kind of antidote to the difficulties and the, and the emotional intensity that I saw at work. So I, I would read for, for joy um, or I would read uh, Oliver Sacks, I think is my, my writing hero in terms of showing us through stories what it is that he's seeing in in other people he is however the absolute master of the footnote isn't he and sometimes the footnotes are, are longer than the, the than the writing that they're referring to so i was really determined while i was writing that it should be manageable without footnotes that it needed to simply be a human talking to another human not a doctor kind of learnedly educating the public because i, I think that voice doesn't really work and he absolutely has got that fantastic voice of come here this is absolutely fascinating you're going to love this this is so interesting let me let me show you this this guy you know this um airline pilot pilot with Tourette's or this you know surgeon with Tourette's who who flies and he doesn't tick while he's flying because of his intensity of his thinking that tells you so much more about Tourette's than every learned paper you could possibly read about it he's just a genius I love that. Did you read that collection that came out posthumously, uh, Rivers of Consciousness, the um, mainly about William James and uh, Charles Darwin articles from the New York Review of Books and stuff like oh, that? He's, he's just just a wonderful, wonderful writer. The thing that I've enjoyed most of his, though, is his very short, probably posthumously published Gratitude. Um, and and it's only three essays, but the original essay, Gratitude, was was in the New York Times and I sobbed my way through it when it was first published and I still still tears me up when I when I read it because it what he's doing is what I've seen happen thousands of times in my work which is get to the point of a, a person realizing that their run at living is almost over and they're working out what it's been all about and what it's been worth and who am I and he has this wonderful thing of describing that he feels as though he's on a very high mountain and he's looking from this mountain down the hillsides and across the plains of his life and it's laid out before him and it now it starts to come together and it makes sense and it's laid out like a map and he can see how all the different parts of his life have brought him to be the person that he is and that he's just quietly grateful for all of that and it's just the most remarkable piece of writing but it's a process that I've seen people doing that reckoning at the end of their lives over and over and that feeling of doing almost a life review and saying yeah do you know what it's had its ups and its downs but god it was fantastic Catherine thank you very much 
and uh, thank you everyone for listening to this we said go to cosmicshambles.com you'll find lots of other book shambles and uh, also a new series we're doing called a book you might not know the most recent episode uh, about a book written by a teenager which was called the punk which was the first ever uh, punk piece of fiction as far as we know uh, with john robb thank you to our producer trent burton and with luck we'll see you again next week bye bye Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookjambles is where you can go to become one, get extended episodes and lots of other goodies. Tickets for nine lessons are on sale now. Science Shambles is a podcast you should subscribe to, as is Brain Yapping with Rachel England and Dean Burnett. New series of that has started this week. Check that out on cosmicshambles.com slash brainyapping. Rate and review five stars. We will be back next week with a brand new episode when Josie will be back and we'll be talking to Francesca Stavrokopoulou. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.